For 170 years, Heston's team of craftsmen and women uses traditional techniques handed down through generations to give your bed a soul and character of its own. Handcrafting beds from layers of the finest natural materials with meticulous attention to detail, the skills Heston's artisans use are the key to perfect sleep. The search for that perfection brings Heston's close to nature, harvesting the purest materials to create your bed and help enhance the way you sleep. Beneath the calm exterior, Heston's beds are packed with innovation, always progressive, always evolving. Like the new Dreamer bed, that helps you to discover a more awake version of yourself. Head to Heston's.com now to find out more, because a better quality of sleep makes for the very best quality of life. That's as true now as it was 170 years ago when the journey began. Heston's, be awake for the first time in your life. And a very good morning to you. We're live from Bonjour Jacob in the 10th arrondissement of Paris. This is the day France goes to the polls in a presidential election that could take the country in one of two very different directions. I'm Emma Nelson. And I'm Tom Burgess Watson. Great to have you with us. Our guests, Florent Biderman and Agnès Poirier, are going to join us to look ahead to the vote and also go through the papers. Uh, Florence, tell us uh, what struck you at this point. What struck me is the fact that uh, there is a, a, an extreme right party who is uh, uh, close to power, and uh, so we have the answer in 10 hours, but uh, this is definitely something new in French politics. And Agnès, who's going to win? I don't know, uh, <laughs> actually. <laughs> For the first, I know what I hope, but... Uh, no, I have no idea. Well, we'll be looking at how the terraces are buzzing and the restaurants are also filling as French hospitality bounces back with Monocle's favourite concierge, Adrian Moore. Plus, we'll be asking how will France face the world under a, either a re-elected President Macron or his far-right rival, Marine Le Pen. It's it the 24th of April 2022, live from Paris. This, this is, is Monocle on Sunday. Sunday. Oh, how cute are we, Tom Burgess Watson? <laughs> <laughs> we got that bit in unison. That was very, that was very unrehearsed, but it happened. It came out nicely. Well, it's a nice sunny day today here in Paris, Emma. And uh, as you've said, we're in, in a cafe called Bonjour Jacob uh, in the 10th arrondissement of Paris. And you can hear the sound of coffee machines in the background. Uh, seems like uh, France is waking up and getting ready for, for the big day ahead of it. Slowly, slowly. I mean, look, we have bright sunshine, at least in the north of France, which means that that's a good day for voting. But just to let you know a little bit about where we are, if you potter about five minutes north of République, uh, in the 10th arrondissement, a place that about 10 to 15 years ago was absolutely dead and now is absolutely buzzing with really lovely little shops Big brands are in here as well, and it's a it's a it's a quarter that's been totally revitalised in a minute. And we'll be talking to our, our guests. I'm delighted to say Florence Biederman and Agnès Parier will be joining us to tell us about how French life has changed in the last few years and what everybody's expectations are for the for the for the presidential elections. But it is just delightful to be with you once again, Tom Burgess Watson, because we used to broadcast years it's been ago. A very long country. time. It has, but I don't know where you've been keeping your <clears throat> portrait in the attic because you haven't. You are as young and sprightly as you were when I last saw well, you. The viewers, they're, they're they don't know that because this is, this is radio, not, uh, not television. So everyone will have to take your word for it. You haven't changed either. Why do you um, think I work in radio? <laughs> tell us. I mean, you've, you've covered a fr You've been here sort of at Monocle for, for, for 10 plus years. Mm. And we've looked at lots of elections together. I, I can remember the 2012 election that swept uh, Francois Hollande to power being in uh, Place de la Bastille. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm getting a bit emotional about that one. I'm not actually, I've got to say, <laughs> I'm not at all. Uh, and of course, then there was the 2017 election that brought uh, the current president to power, uh, Emmanuel Macron. So I've covered two elections for Monocle. This is my third. And, and you, when you lived in Paris back in your A million years youth, ago. In your student years. Thank you. you. Who, was the, who was the president oh, then? Oh my goodness. So I was here, I was here in 95. So I was here when Jacques Chirac takes on Lionel Jospin uh, and, and replaces, uh, you know, F Francois Mitterrand, who's, who was dying at the time. And my goodness, when you look at that, you cannot quite contemplate 
what we're looking at now in terms of French politics, because in the old days, it used to be the left versus the right. There were two big parties and that was it. And it was two big heavyweight men who took on each other. And now, as we're going to find out today, who knows which way French politics is going to go? It's going to two, one of two very polarised directions. But my goodness, what's happened to the political climate? Very good question. I mean, the country seems extremely fractured. When you consider there were 12 people in the first round of, of the election uh, and how it whittles down to two and how the people who voted for the other 10 candidates are going to vote this time around, uh, you know, it, a lot remains to be seen. But what's really striking as well, looking at modern French politics <clears throat> these last 20 years or so, uh, you know, no president has served two terms. So you were talking about Jacques Chirac and, and François Mitterrand, who both had more than one term, but we've had sort of one-hit wonder presidents, uh, one after the other. Uh, let's see if Emmanuel Macron is going to buck that trend. Let's bring in some regular voices around the microphone. Uh, we have AFP's Florence Biderman, a regular, regular contributor. Hello, bonjour. Bonjour, Emma. It's good to see you. And Agnès Poirier, also a regular voice here. Finally, face-to-face, -face, we meet Agnès, a journalist, writer, author of uh, Notre Dame, Soul of France. It is so nice to have you here on a bright, big election day. Um, how much do the French actually care about what's happening here? Because there seems to be a lot of diffidence about People are thinking, well, we don't like either, we're not passionate about anyone. There's nothing really positive well, here. No, that's for sure. But diffidence is not indifference. Um, we'll, we'll see with the uh, turnout uh, figures. Because the, the presidential election is always, you know, the, the top elections in France. Um, and if you compare, you know, to, with uh, the US or even the UK, we're talking about um, usually uh, participation or turnout uh, for the second round above 80. So anything below 80 is considered low. So, for instance, you know, um, I remember very well this, the second round for in, in 2012, uh, François Hollande, no, um, yeah. Sarkozy and uh, against Ségolène Royal, uh, the participation was 83%. It's something normal for us. So anything below, we're like, oh, my God. <laughs> I'm saying this could have the lowest turnout since 1969, this no, time around? We'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean, the first round, we had 74%, which is low mm -hmm. for French standards, which would be considered extremely high in the US or even in the UK for a general election. Um, so anything uh, below 74 would be not good. But in, in 2017, uh, I just looked at the figures, it was 70, 74%. Um, if it reaches 80, hmm, it means people feel, you know, more, more, and of course, anything above 80 percent uh, means that people will um, care even more. So, so you know, since we're making a big case of how the left voters are going to uh, vote or or not vote, um, that will be a clear indicator. We usually have it at midday. We have the figures of turnout at midday and 5 p.m. And from that figure at 5 p.m., we can we know how many will have voted by 8 or 9 p.m. when when the polling um, you know stations close. Florence, we were batting quite a lot of politics around the dinner table last night. We 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 plunged right in, but is that any kind of reflection of how people have been engaged with the pol with the political scene this time around? Are people really talking? I get the impression when I wander around, you know, no posters up. Maybe everyone's gone on online, but friends I speak to are just a bit like, oh, really? Do we have to vote? We're going to have to. But this is nothing that anyone's that excited about. Well, first, it was a very special campaign. You see, uh, you said you didn't see many posters around, and the atmosphere was different than a previous one. Maybe because of COVID, but certainly also because of the war in Ukraine, you know. So uh, Emmanuel Macron himself didn't campaign very hard on the first round, just involved himself more uh, on the second one, definitely. Um, so, I mean, people tend to think, I mean, generally that uh, French are not that interested in this election. Uh, that's what several polls were, were saying before uh, before this second round. So, but I think now, I mean, let's see if the turnout is uh, high or not, because there is something really important at stake. Uh, it's first time like the far right gets that many votes. I mean, uh, is uh, uh, everybody expect that there will be uh, less difference in votes between Macron and Le Pen than five years ago? Uh, so th there is something at stake that maybe could mobilize voters or 
you can also think the reverse, and that's why it's so unclear like to say um, five years ago already it was Macron-Le Pen. And, oh, no, we, we don't want to choose. We didn't want to choose before. We don't want to choose. We don't care, and we, don't, we won't go and vote. So it, it's really, really be interesting to see what the turnout will be. And, and yes, I, I was struck by how sort of late to the game, in a way, President Macron was in terms of getting his campaign mobilized. I think he didn't really start campaigning until about eight days before the first round of voting. Why, why was that? Was that a, decision, a, conscious, a conscious decision on his part? And also, he was late to the day saying he was actually going to run as president at all. W what was the strategy, do you think? Well, <clears throat> there was a strategy, but there was also what was happening in the world. I mean, basically, it was so busy. You know, there was COVID, December, uh, January, and then, of course, the war in U Ukraine, but also France being the president or, or just doing the presidency of the European Union uh, until uh, June. So basically, when could he, <laughs> could he uh, declare himself? Um, so he left it to the last minute, to the very last moment. Um, and what people have said it was, that was wrong. a mistake. Yeah, that, I mean, he, he said it himself a week mm. later. He said, well, I wish I could have done differently. Uh, now I know I should have done differently. But um, also, you know, it's very difficult if, if you're already president uh, to, uh, to declare. One is, you know, because then you need to be at the helm and to look after what's going on. Then suddenly you lose... I mean, you're still the president, but you lose that image suddenly that the French think about yourself as a candidate. So it's slightly, you don't want to uh, instill any confusion in their minds. So, so it's, yeah, strategically, it was a difficult uh, decision. He probably made a mistake, but it's easy to say that now. It's a very difficult issue, though, when it comes to Emmanuel Macron, isn't it, Florence? The fact that if you watch the debate that took place between him and Marine Le Pen on Wednesday evening, she, at the start at least, seemed to be able to make that emotional connection, which is what Emmanuel Macron consistently fails at doing. I think someone once said that if you sat next to Emmanuel Macron at a dinner party, he'd be telling you what he thought and how you should manage any kind of situation. And there wouldn't be much time for listening and empathy. Um, how much has that put the, the French election, electors off or maybe driven them towards Madame Le Pen? That's from the beginning. I mean, uh, there was uh, this uh, uh, idea on Emmanuel Macron that he was kind of president of the rich because he took some economic decision like to uh, lower taxes on businesses, on, uh, on wealth. Uh, and it stuck to him. I mean, it's part maybe of his personality, you know, like he's not, the, the, let's say, the warmest person you can imagine. Uh, in the debate, certainly, as Agnès said, like, yes, he was very late to, 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 to start the campaign. And for some people, it was perceived that, ah, yeah, of course, like, he doesn't really care. He thinks he will be reelected anyway. Uh, he's not close to, enough to the people, to our daily worries. He doesn't come and visit us. So that, that was also perceived as something uh, of uh, making me this uh, aloof uh, uh, president that is, uh, has been one of his... Uh, uh, problems and um, in the debate also uh, and it was uh, really noticed on the social networks there were several pictures of him like during the debate showing him you know like sitting back in his chair uh, or putting uh, his hand on his chin and uh, listening to uh, raising his eyebrows and listening to Marine Le Pen and meaning oh my god she talks nonsense or oh no this is uh, n'importe quoi so and again, you could say maybe he was right because indeed what she was saying, like economically at least, uh, in this um, field is stronger than anybody else. So it, could, it would be easy for him to point the weaknesses or the contradiction. So you could say he was right, but in the end, it, it came across as yes, again, or he is condescending. And this is at least what Marine Le Pen largely exploited after the debate where, by the way, she managed much better than in a previous debate with Emmanuel Macron five years ago. So this time, last time she really collapsed. Like she, 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 she wasn't on top uh, of her brief, was she, she last time? She kind of uh, chose a very offensive strategy. I mean, it, it, completely, uh, it completely failed. This time, I mean, she came across much better, which was not difficult, maybe. Uh, and generally, like you would say, yeah, you could see uh, Macron as the winner because technically uh, he's always stronger. But she managed to, to make her stand and uh, also, again, to, to exploit this 
aspect of Emmanuel Macron who couldn't resist, you know, this, uh, or maybe his idea was to emphasize the fact that uh, she was um, talking uh, nonsense, but it, again, uh, Stalin as someone a bit like, you know, teacher-like, and, oh, no, you're not good, you're not good enough, what you say is not good enough, so. How much of a difference will the debate have made coming as it did four days ahead of election day? Do you think it's likely to have swung people? Because actually, again, we were talking about participation levels and engagement just a moment ago. Record low numbers of people actually bothered to watch the debate. 30%, I think, uh, of the French electorate mm. uh, did watch uh, the debate, which is, you know, uh, very little. I think the, when they first started uh, TV debates for the second round in 74, uh, the uh, Giscard versus Mitterrand debate was watched by 82% of the French electorate, so imagine that. So it means, basically, um, that it won't make much of a difference. Um, also, you know, as you, as Florence said, um, I mean, she was much better. Marine Le Pen was much better performing than last time, um, and he was, as expected, far superior on all you know policies and the precisions and the technicalities. Um, and he couldn't help uh, with his body language um, showing. But it was also, in many ways, it was you know a lot of people at home were doing exactly like him, thinking, my God. Uh, she is so incompetent. So, you know, there's a thing in France, uh, you take competence for arrogance. Um, so you should always play down and uh, because being intelligent is perhaps now seen as arrogant. Um, that's an evolution in French society when before you admired people who were intelligent because if, we, if you talk about arrogance um, of Emmanuel Macron, I am old enough to remember Mitterrand and Giscard. I don't think they were um, less arrogant uh, than uh, Emmanuel Macron. Comes with, comes with the office perhaps a little bit. <laughs> well, presumably, and perhaps it comes with you know, knowing um, the dossier and, and actually uh, ruling a country. Yes, Emma. It's funny that you mentioned the idea of arrogance and who's able of read, reading the country. There's a, there's a really good article in the New York Times this weekend which says that Marine Le Pen has already won. Even if she loses, she's already won because of the amount of how she's managed to appeal to lots and lots of people. I mean, yeah, she doesn't, ex let's be honest, she doesn't come across as the world's greatest expert, but she manages when she talks to, talk to the nurses, to workers. She makes that. Um, she hits the spot. And there's this quote of this woman in Burgundy um, who said, we've tried the right, that didn't work. We tried the left, that didn't work. Let's try the far right now with a woman in power. And it's, a, it's that idea of like, well, we've, we've had a go at everything and we've got this left. It's crazy. Well, the French expect so much of their president. <laughs> Look, it's not a beauty contest. They will never get the perfect person. Um, so they, they are in a state of permanent dissatisfaction um, and resentment now. So, um, you know, they, they would elect Marine Le Pen, fine, and, and in less than six months they will be in the streets to tr try and get rid of her. Um, it is true that she, she's worked so hard since she was elected at the, um, at the top of, and, and the helm of the party in 2011 to change her image, to change the image of, of the party that was founded by her father, who was much more ferocious. He was scary. He was a scary figure. So she's a cat breeder. So she's a cat person. And she says she doesn't talk at, at all about her manifesto, because if she started doing it, people would be scared again. Um, but frankly, I mean, do you fall for somebody who just uh, says, oh, yes, I understand your problems? Um, you know, if it's what the French want, well, you know, let them have it. Yeah, some have said that uh, Marine Le Pen winning would be sort of France's Brexit moment, France's Trump moment. Do you think those are, are adequate uh, points of comparison, Florence? No, I think it would be worse than Brexit. <laughs> I don't know. Hang on, Florence. <laughs> I've got a few thoughts on that. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, let's not forget she's on the far right, you know. I mean, you wouldn't describe Brexit as a far-right choice, like a uh, different society choice. Uh, well, okay, we can debate on the word. Uh, if she was coming to power, I mean, she would try to change the French constitution. Uh, she would try to somehow get France out of the EU, like through, 
you know, taking such measures, are diminishing France contribution to the budget, uh, having French law taking precedence on EU law. So she says, no, no, I don't want to leave the EU. Uh, she wants to make an alliance of nations, you know, of course, with nations like Hungary, Poland, with uh, closer to to our ideas of uh, of society. So, I mean, definitely that that would be a, a, a much bigger change somehow uh, for people in their daily life, you know. Also, like, what about the economy? If an extreme right party arrives to power in France, you think the investors will uh, take it? Well, I mean, economically, it would have a strong impact. So, definitely, it's it's to me, it, it looks like. And you would say Trump was Trump, yes, but he was, he had a party behind him that was still a traditional party supporting by traditional people. Marine Le Pen doesn't have this kind of, you know, mainstream party. I mean, if you look closely at who, who are, you know, her, um, like, uh, aides or whatever, like, regularly people are expelled because uh, they made, like, racist, anti-Semitic remarks. I mean, she's always trying to, to contain uh, this uh, wing of the party, which was like uh, obviously dominant in her father's party, openly anti-Semitic, xenophobic. Uh, she used to be for death penalty, against gay marriage. So now she changed all this. But the people in her party didn't change their idea that easily, you know. So there is two levels, I would say. There is this shining side of Marine Le Pen, of softening her stance on, on many issues, not on immigration, by the way. Uh, but at the root level, at the grassroots level, I mean, her voters, I mean, what do they really expect? So this is a, really a, a choice of society. So uh, in this sense, I wouldn't compare it to Brexit. Brexit didn't change uh, the British society, I would say, uh, as much as... <laughs> I'm pulling a face. Okay, okay, okay. Good, let's it's, debate. It's, inter it's interesting, though, isn't it? And this is a question that I, I ask, but never have sort of like managed to get to the heart of Agnès, is that come to France, you're a lovely bunch of reasonably minded, good citizens. How is it that on a day in 2022, when we've seen, seen Brexit, we've seen Trump, and what happens to societies and economies and people when you get so, so much of an explosive influence, that the French still manage to be voting? There is a possibility that a far-right candidate and party could actually become, come into power later today. It is. I mean, how, do, how did we get here? <laughs> well, I mean, if it, the, the, the cruel irony, of course, is um, France is a champion of redistribution of wealth, and with 57% of its GDP going to uh, support income and, and benefits and free education and, and health. Um, and somehow we have people who take it for granted to, to, to start with. Um, they want more, fine, they want more rights, why not? Um, but they don't know how lucky they are. And um, uh, any, anybody who's lived in different places in the world know how lucky they are uh, when they are French and, and um, when they live in France. And there's also always, it's always been like this, this playing with fire. We the people have the power. Uh, we've known that since 1789. We do as we please. And if we want to play with fire, we will do. So, so you know, listen carefully, uh, decision makers and people in power, because uh, we decide. And uh, there, there's always this element of, hmm, be careful. Um, so I think in the end, I think in the end, they will, for the third time, repel the far right and stop the far right from uh, reaching the uh, the presidency. But there is a younger generation. If you look at how they voted, that the youngest of the youngest, 18 to 24 years old, um, if it was down to them, we would be today uh, choosing between Jean-Luc Mélenchon, a far left um, demagogue, or populist, um, and, and a far right demagogue, Marine Le Pen. So there is an element of them um, saying it's a different brew of, of French voters and, and just happy to, to, uh, to implode, implode the system, whatever that means. And it's ironic, isn't it, that, the, that supporters of Jean-Luc Mélenchon the first time around, supporting the far left, might actually vote for the far right in the second round. That's something I can't get my head around, although... Uh, you know, it's the topic of endless dinner party conversations. Uh, uh, what are your thoughts, Florence? Why would someone who voted far left 
in round one think it's normal and coherent to vote far right in round two? Well, first, I think it's already a minority of uh, Mélenchon voters. Uh, most of 30, them would... 30%, uh, apparently? Yeah, I mean... Mo well, it depends on... on Could the, swing the balance. That is you look at. But yeah, that would be this common element, as you say, populist, demagogue, I mean, on both sides. Uh, and also, uh, they don't want to... to to choose and to vote for Macron again, who, uh, like five years ago, already tried to create this, what we call Front Républicain, you know, like, what's important is to vote against the extreme right. This, this is not uh, uh, such a dominant idea anymore. Marine Le Pen detoxified her brand. Uh, she uh, pretends she's the champion of the people against the elite. So yeah, that, that can appeal to um, some Mélenchon voters too. That is the way that uh, France's role in the world will be under Macron and possibly under Le Pen. Macron demonstrated that for the last five years that he is a strong performer on the international stage. I mean, his positioning of France within Europe is astonishing. I mean, he's taking perhaps advantage of the departure of Angela Merkel. But even in the, the, the conflict with Ukraine, he is taking that, that leadership role. His popularity is huge outside France, isn't he? He's got that Obama problem. Everyone loves him outside of France, but inside, not so sure. But Le Pen, I mean, again, the world is no stranger now to, to extreme voices popping up. What would happen to France if Le Pen got in? And yes, outside. Well, we would be switching off the light for the next five <laughs> years, basically. I mean, you can continue uh, without us. Um, it would be a catastrophe, frankly. Uh, because at best it would be paralysis in Brussels um, and the European Union would be on standby for five years or would just implode um, because there's no European Union without France, really. Um, and um, I can't you know, start uh, contemplating um, except, yeah, switch off the light. Simple as that. Simple as that. And leaders in Brussels seem to have, you know, that concern. They, they've issued veiled threats, haven't they, about what a Le Pen presidency would mean. Yeah, and you had, like, uh, the German chancellor taking stand. Uh, mm. You had even Navalny in Russia <laughs> voting for Macron. You know, I mean, everybody realised what, and, and what Lula, it would be. And Lula in Brazil. Yeah, all uh, over the... But that, that's why somehow, you know, it's so difficult to, to try to imagine what a horror show it would be. That's, that's when you start to realize, no, it cannot happen. <laughs> I, yeah, history, history has warned us of otherwise. I'm sitting here, I'm not breathing out until 8 p.m. Um, because that's when we're going to get the elections. Um, let's just talk a little bit about the atmosphere in, in here in Paris at the moment. I mean, just walking around in the last couple of days, it has been a city which is rebounding. There are areas of the capital which two, three years ago, we're sitting in one of them, we're okay, there's nothing wonderful happening. But it's not long ago since those terrible terrorist attacks and France was plunged into a terrible funk then and then we had covid and you know just walking around last night you would never get the impression that anything bad had happened here i mean there's a real is there a sense of resilience here or is that just me with with sort of rose-tinted frenchy spectacles when i <laughs> when i stumbled off the Eurostar? it might be an element of that yeah, it's, just, it's, it's like florence saying brexit is is not far right mm. because when you live in in the uk then you have a different uh, opinion um Look, I think, you know, I think it's a globalised uh, trend, you know, city centres um, in beautiful European uh, capital cities um, faring very well, even despite uh, COVID. Um, and some Parisians might disagree with you because uh, we've seen Paris evolve in the last few years, not in the way we would have wanted. Um, so we could talk about Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, but perhaps we won't because she got 1.7%. And as we say in French, you don't shoot uh, an ambulance. Um, so, so she's not going to be around for a very long time. But um, if she finishes her mandate as the uh, mayor of Paris, she would have been in power as deputy and then mayor for 25 years and I think that's, that would have been far too long. Um, but uh, yes, Paris, with the eyes of somebody who comes off the Eurostar, it looks, you know, great, well, especially in the sunshine. I don't know, Friday night on the Guardian is not so, not so, not no. so handy. 
It could be, could be nicer. I mean, the, the, Agnes just mentioning there Anne Hidalgo, who, you know, goes back right to the conversation that Tom and I were having at the beginning of this programme. 15, 20 years ago, we had the left and we had the right, and now we're looking at an absolute... It's like a Scrabble board. It's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's really been spectacular. I mean, on the left, let's say, already when Macron arrived in power five years ago, they, they really lost, you know, their... They, they had, what, some 6% of the votes, which was five, kind of... Five years ago. Yes. Yeah, five years ago. And now one point. Uh, so now their, you know, their uh, descent to hell had started five years ago. But for the classic right, like the Les Républicains, uh, they got 20% of the vote five years ago with their candidate Fillon. And now, like, they went from 20% to 4.7-something. Uh, now, you know, and this was uh, really the, the one of the most striking aspects of this election, the collapse of, uh, of the right. Uh, she was not helped also because uh, the dominating figure in the party, still Nicolas Sarkozy, didn't even support their candidate, uh, the poor Valérie Pécresse. Like, she made a bad campaign. Nobody can even quote, you know, one measure, one strong decision she was going to, to make when she, if she was ever elected. So the campaign was really uh, not good. And so now you arrive to this situation where those two parties barely exist. But, but, but there will be kind of a third round with the, the general election in June. And they so far have been strong at the local level with some 100 MPs, more or less, the Republicans. So, they may survive, but this is one of the questions for, for the next month. Will, will this party survive or not? You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. We're live from Bonjour Jacob, a cafe in the 10th arrondissement of Paris. It's a special French election show. Uh, in a moment, we'll be joined by uh, Joseph Devec, who'll be talking to us about Emmanuel Macron. Uh, but for the moment, thank you so much, Agnès Parier and Florence Biedermann. You'll be back at the end of the show to put a spring in our step as we head into the Paris sunshine. Stay with us on Monocle 24. Heston's has, for more than 170 years, been facilitating a good night's rest, a quality that's prioritised by Heston's fifth-generation CEO, Jan Ride. He knows that sleep is key to finding balance and restoring our physical body. We are not human doings, we are human beings. We can have business goals or professional goals, but we need to make sure that we have that balance. For that, I mean, take care of our emotional well-being, take care of our health, take care of our spiritual well-being, because if we are going to be able to achieve higher levels of creations or abundance, it's so important that we are humble enough to understand we are spiritual beings in a physical body. Head to Heston's.com now to learn more about how a good night's rest helps the company's CEO, Jan Ride, and the world's creative and business leaders too. Heston's, be awake for the first time in your life. Welcome back. You are listening to Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson and me, Tom Burgess-Watson, live in Paris. We are. We're in uh, Bonjour Jacob, a lovely, now buzzing little cafe in uh, the heart of the 10th arrondissement. Just stagger up a little bit from République and you will find us tucked in a corner. Um, it's a very lovely place and the time here in Paris is 10.32. I am delighted to say that the Swiss historian and political scientist Joe Dweck, a fellow with the Foreign Policy Research Institute, joins us now. Bonjour. Bonjour. Oh, good morning. Bonjour. Good morning. <laughs> good, good morning. Oh, good morning. <laughs> Let's have you back. Oh, my goodness, we're back in Zurich. Yeah. Um, you've written the, the brilliant essay, Emmanuel Macron, the Révolutionnaire President, um, a profile of Emmanuel Macron, but also an assessment of how the French treat their rulers in general. I mean, we heard from Agnès a little bit earlier on that, you know, you're still not beyond decapitating your, your, your chief leaders, are you? Not necessarily physically, but, but they're very good at getting rid of those who they don't like. I mean, what are your thoughts going into today? Well, in the Yellow Vest protests, they're actually put up guillotines and, um, and uh, they decapitated <laughs> Macron puppets. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the fantasy of some people, you know, is very alive. And, uh, and some people heading into the vote today will certainly uh, think about not voting for Le Pen, but 
but being motivated by not having uh, Macron elected for another five-year term. And you have to understand, in France, the president is such a powerful figure, not only the competences he has, but he's also an omnipresent person in the media sphere, in the public sphere, everything is decided by him. And this was especially the case with Emmanuel Macron. I think there has been no more powerful president than Emmanuel Macron, at least since Charles de Gaulle. He not only controlled the Elysee, but he also completely controlled the parliament because his party is no real party. It's more sort of a voting club for Emmanuel Macron. There's no, you know, sort of opposition within his own party. So, um, so this election today is really a referendum uh, on him more than it has been ever the case before. And you mentioned the yellow vests uh, right in the beginning, and, and, and that's been a subject that's come back onto you know, the radar in the last couple of weeks with the election looming. I mean, do you think perhaps one of the big mistakes that Macron made back in 2018 when they sort of uh, appeared on the scene in a very dramatic way was perhaps he was perceived as not listening to them. And perhaps if he had listened to them and at least appeared to listen to them a little bit more and take some of their concerns uh, to heart, i.e. cost of living, which has come back as being perhaps the main issue of this election, perhaps things would have turned out a bit differently for him. Probably. I mean, part of the success of Emmanuel Macron is that he is a pragmatist technocrat. And most of the reforms he did at the beginning are sort of pragmatic, technocratic reforms. And we see the success today, you know, unemployment is way down, the economy is going well. But the problem is, if you're such a technocrat, uh, you think of politics as a sort of puzzle game or like a math question, you know, doing sort of the, the sort of economically right thing. But politics is much more than that. It's also about interests. It's about feelings. It's about listening. It's about representing the people. And he certainly didn't do this. The funny thing with Macron, though, is that if he is forced to listen to people, he's actually a great listener. And he showed this in the Yellow Vest protests, you know, like he went on this grand tour of France, Le Grand Débat, where, you know, like for about 80 hours, he was listening to people and debating with them, really taking them seriously. And somehow magically, you know, it, it was enough to calm down these protests. And this is because he can really listen, but he doesn't do it on his own. He does it only if he's really forced to do it. One thing that um, I've heard as criti criticism of Macron is friends yesterday over lunch were, were complaining about how Emmanuel Macron doesn't have a vision, a long-term strategy for France. Now, and when that said, we've had COVID to contend with and we've got the war in Ukraine at the moment. So there's an enormous amount, and the cost of living as well, which is an enormous amount of immediate management that, that needs to be done. But is it fair that, that Macron is a great sort of like corporate manager of France, but he doesn't tell people what the world is going to be like for French people in 10, 20, 50 years? I think one of the examples that was given by my friend was he doesn't really have a, a big plan for, 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 for ecology, for, for, for the green movement. Mm. How fair a criticism is that? Well, it's a sort of criticism that is, you know, again, that, is, that is made against every French president. And I think with Emmanuel Macron is actually quite untrue. In a sense, he has a vision where the country is. Uh, this is sort of, you know, the, his big European idea. Um, and he's trying to sort of convince the French of this idea of a sovereign Europe and, 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 and France's place within it. So he has a sort of macro vision of, you know, how to influence the world, how to matter geopolitically, how to defend France's interests, how to tame global capitalism. And this is via the European Union. So there is a strategy there. But the criticism is fair in the sense that he's a complete pragmatist on everything else. And the French really, they're, they're a bit confused about this because they want they think in terms of ideas and ideology and they think, is he left wing, is he right wing? And, you know, in reality, if you look at his politics, it looks like the politics of a, you know, a grand coalition in Germany. It's a bit neoliberal, you know, cutting the taxes for, you know, on, on, on capital and, and for the rich uh, to, to, to lure in investment, which actually they work. Um, it's social democratic. He increased, you know, the minimum pension and the minimum wage much more than Francois Hollande did. A socialist, you know, his social policy, there's a bit of reactionary stuff in there. There's a bit of progressive stuff in there. It's all over the place. And that confuses mostly columnists because they're sort of like, hey, you know, like, yeah, it doesn't have like a clear line and there's no clear idea and you don't know where it stands for. But I believe, and this is maybe my Swiss or my German back, back thing, is that in the end, people really don't give a damn about ideology. Most people care about, you know, 
Is he a good president? Did he manage to, to do the crisis? Is the economy going well? And you know, Merkel got elected four times. She was in power for 16 years. And this was even after the end of 16 years. And no one knew what Angela Merkel was about. No one knew ideologically if she was left or censor or right or whatever. People just trusted her. And this is the big ace. Macron is up his sleeve. There's still going to be a lot of unfinished business, though, for Macron if he doesn't win mm -hmm. a second term. I mean, his legacy will go down as being, you know, the third in a row of these uh, one-term presidents that, you know, particularly in his case, because he had the pandemic that, that obviously interrupted a lot of his plans uh, for, for a good two years. There's a lot of things he didn't get round to doing, mergers of companies in the public sector, um, general sort of tidying up. Do you think he, he will go down as being perhaps an unsuccessful president if he doesn't win this second term and, and get that business finished of reforming the country? Well, yeah, if he, I mean, if he doesn't win, then he has the fate of Barack Obama uh, or the fate of a guy like Matteo Renzi in Italy or, you know, like being the ultra centrist zombie that paves the way for, for the far right. There's a history to that and that is his big danger. And we probably will forget most of the things he did right if, uh, if this happens. However, I think there's one thing that Macron already now has probably changed forever, not forever, but at least for a generation. And that is the idea of the European Union. You know, like Macron in, in 2017, Le Pen wanted to exit the European Union. She wanted to have a Frexit. And, um, and so the second round in 2017 became a referendum on Frexit. And uh, Le Pen lost it just with a third of the vote. It was a crushing defeat. And since then, the idea that France would exit the European Union is gone. No one today in the campaign you know, mentions this or wants this because everyone knows you lose if you, if, you, if you demand a Frexit. And so in a sense, he has lost this culture war, even if Le Pen uh, wins. He, is, he has won this culture war. Sorry. He is that great politician who, who takes his personal, um, his personal ideology, if, if indeed he has one, as being absolutely connected to being within Europe. And no one seems to have been bothered about that. I mean, had that been said in quite a few other countries, I'm not going to suggest any in particular, Britain, um, that, you, that that would have been an enormous sort of, sort of cauldron of problems. But the fact is that the, the French seem to have completely embraced that. Is that right? I think they have realized that their that their fate or their destiny is within this europe afterwards there is a debate you know always about how this europe should look like but we're really past the 2016 moment of brexit where where anyone in france seriously thinks about leaving the european union it just doesn't fly you know the you know macron won 2017 with two-thirds of the vote it's politically it's dead um so the question is more about how you do it uh, than than whether you do it Okay, well, I'm afraid we're out of time, but I've just written down ultra-centrist zombie as being a, a, new, a new little catchphrase that I will remember to use on a future well, occasion. That's, that's what, like, the far-left friends of mine say, you know? Okay. Okay. That's like some terrible political horror movie. Yeah. The ultra watch out, the, the ultra-centrist zombies are, are, are coming to join you. Okay, well, thank you so much for speaking to us. It's been a real pleasure, Joseph Dubuque. Thank you very much indeed. This is Monocle on Sunday. You're back with Monocle on Sunday. I'm Tom Burgess-Watson. I'm Emma Nelson. We're joining you live from Bourgeois Jacob, a cafe in the 10th arrondissement of Paris. There's a special broadcast on the French presidential elections. Round two is well underway. Polls close at 8 p.m. local time, which is when we are all expecting to get a result and find out who the next president of France is going to be. So just to let you know, if you can hear something a little bit unusual, it's because we're live in a very nice, bustling, busy cafe. And isn't it nice to see France open. Absolutely, it certainly is. And it's clear for anyone who lives here, like I do, uh, and for months we didn't hear any languages apart from French being spoken around this city uh, during the months of the pandemic. Tourists are definitely back in town. Almost all restrictions have been lifted, with the exception of the rule that you must wear a mask on public transport. Otherwise, there isn't a single visible clue that for some 25 months, the world's most visited city has seen tourists um, 
uh, return and they're back in very large numbers. Indeed. We're, not we're back queuing to get back into the Louvre, which <laughs> is a pain. And I was lucky enough to go to the theatre yesterday in Paris and it was absolutely sold out. And at the end of the show, uh, the actors stopped the applause and said, actually, we just want to say thank you that we're back up and running and we're, you know, thank you so much for coming back in and filling the seats with such uh, wild abandon. There was huge wild applause. So let's examine a little bit about how Paris and the rest of France is faring when it comes to hospitality. I'm delighted to say we have an absolute expert sitting next to us, Adrian Moore, top Paris concierge, author of two books on what's in the fridges of the world's famous chefs and a good friend of Monocle. Hello, Adrian. Hello. Bonjour. Nice to be here. Nice to Hi, have Emma. you. Hi, <laughs> How's it looking today in Paris? Nice, bright and breezy oh, and ready gorgeous. to... It's gorgeous, isn't yeah, it? You're in one of the one of the most vibrant neighbourhoods in Paris. I mean, uh, the tenth, we're uh, next to the along uh, along the, um, along the uh, Napoleon Third shipping canal, uh, filled with uh, local uh, natural wine bars, uh, buzzing bistros, and uh, and uh, cool little pubs. It's, mm. a, it's a great little place, huh? Yeah, and some quite noisy uh, mopeds yes. outside. The <laughs> See, people are moving. Absolutely, it's buzzing in, in every sense of, of the word buzz. And this this area has changed beyond all recognition, certainly in the. 12, 13 years that I've been living in this city. Well, why do you think that is? Oh, um, I mean, uh, at the moment, or yeah. uh, but, but, but I think at the moment, the um, this is one of the um, areas it's really started to buzz because um, the rents historically have been quite cheap. Mm. Um, but the Paris restaurant scene has changed a lot lately, um, mainly, I think, because of a, an influx of, um, of foreign chefs or French chefs who actually trained in uh, elsewhere and uh, who learned uh, to sort of adapt this new um, casual, um, hip, um, bistro style that's the, really the big thing in Paris at the moment. So if you were taking us all out for dinner tonight, <laughs> after we've watched the French election, so what kind of places are you going to be taking us to? Well, so, uh, actually, I've got a few, few little addresses here. That was here. an open yeah. invitation, by open the way. Open invitation, yeah. <laughs> One thing on Sunday, a lot of places are closed in Paris, unfortunately. But um, you have got a lot of little, um, really nice little places around the area. They're quite, uh, quite typical of the, the new way of doing things. Um, people are not going after the big trendy restaurants anymore. They're looking for things a little bit smaller, have more character, more sustainable. Um, for example, one place I love around the corner um, is called Early June, which is a sort of a, a natural wine bar. Um, slash restaurant that does a, a revolving um, roster of international chefs. And at the moment, they have um, the uh, Joel Aronsons, who was a former head chef of uh, Favikin, which was in the north of, uh, of Sweden and one of the top uh, restaurants in, in the world. Um, it's casual. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's friendly. Another place up the road, which, is, which I really love, I'm a great customer there, is a place called Rarenga Wines, which is just a, a few feet away from the, uh, the entrance of the Gaudelest uh, train station. Um, it's a, a bookstore and a natural wine um, uh, shop, which was opened by half uh, Maori, New Zealand, half American former actor, and it's um, he only uh, sells wines from uh, from um, small uh, niche um, friendly producers who are um, could be single moms, could be trans wine winemakers. It's quite an interesting place, and every wine that he sells, it's not the wine he sells, it's the story about the person behind it. That sounds amazing. I mean, it is a, that sounds like a real change, given the fact that when you come to Paris, you know that there are the, the favourites that you can go to again and again and again and again, and world, the world doesn't change, which in many ways is incredibly comforting and incredibly reassuring. But I can imagine if you lived in Paris, that can get a bit boring. Yeah, so this, are, we looking at a, a really, are we looking at a big change here in the way that so. the I French so. eat? I mean, especially post-pandemic, I mean... Um, uh, there are two different things. Um, uh, one, um, we have a big problem with, uh, well, not a problem for them, but there are two large restaurant groups in Paris who own all of the trendy restaurants. Um, and uh, they, between them, uh, you have the MoMA group, and then you have um, uh, another one called um, um, Paris Society. And they own about, I think, 60 restaurants between them. And these are all the international, cool places like Giraffe, which is a seafood spot in front of the Eiffel Tower that everybody wants to go to. Um, I mean, it's the, but this is, um, I think people are shying away from this. And even the international tourist who, who once wanted to go only to three Palmerton restaurants or these uh, crazy, uh, you know, uh, trendy places that are impossible to get into are now finding out about through internet, through, through different, uh, different, you know, social media about places like, you know, uh, like early June or uh, some of these smaller uh, 
friendly wine bars and bistros. Are the, are the menus changing much? Are you seeing more sort of international fare making its way onto the Paris restaurant scene? Um, no, uh, I think the real, the real trend for the last few years has been seasonality, locality, um, and uh, people being creative with whatever's in season at that moment. Um, that's, that's a big trend here. Um, and just tell us a little bit more about the people who are running and working in these places. I'm sure that Paris wouldn't be the only, or France wouldn't be the only place on earth which is really struggling to get good people working yeah. in hospitality. Well, What's it like? Well, I, I, you know, I, I work in the hotel industry and it, it's been a catastrophe. Um, even, um, well, for two things. Number one, you've got the advent of revenge tourism. People, it's, well, people um, don't want to travel, they need to travel. And when they travel, they'll go to a destination and they want to, to soak up every, every atom of you know, the, the city. Uh, they want to do everything all the time. Um, yeah, there's a, real, there's a real problem with the post, post-pandemic uh, sort of hunger to, to experience uh, destinations. Yeah, it's, uh, a, it's a mad wave that, pos- that possesses you, didn't indeed, it? I mean, I've, I've been absolutely you know, pos- you know, consumed with, le- mm. I need to see this, this, yeah. this, 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 uh, and this. And another thing is that the, the big hotel companies are really having trouble um, getting quality staff. Um, for example, uh, as a palace concierge, uh, a few years back, mm-hmm. you would struggle to find a, it'd be a real challenge to find a job in a, in a, in a top hotel. Yesterday, I was looking in through the um, Journal des Palaces, which is the, uh, the um, recruitment uh, magazine uh, par excellence uh, uh, for, for hotel staff. And there are more than 90 uh, different off- openings for a concierge desk uh, in Paris. Uh, it's giving me some career ideas. Unheard of. <laughs> absolutely. If I can get a permit to come back, then absolutely. It is, I think, so where are you getting people from? I mean, where, where can you get them from? Is it France? Yeah, yes. Yeah, it's it mostly, French, mostly local. Mostly local. Brilliant. Um, um, it's rare that we get people from other countries. It's mostly local because we need the local knowledge and the, the local uh, you know, uh, connections and savoir-faire. Um, but um, a lot of hotels are stealing employees from, from other hotels. Um, and it's mostly because they're paying more. You know, it's... Uh, Adrian, thank you. We'll have to leave it there. Um, I'm going to Pleasure. plunge straight back into a bit more revenge tourism. That I makes, love that expression, I revenge tourism. I love that expression. Yeah. I've got a sort a of a bit one. between my teeth. Adrian Moore, thank you so no, much for joining us on Monocle on thank Sunday. Um, we're going to hear a bit of uh, chair scraping now because we've got to do a quick turnaround. So we say thank you very much indeed to Adrian. But so gingerly placing himself in front of a microphone is the man behind the cafe that we're in this morning. Bonjour, Jacob. But you're not Jacob, are you? Hani, Hani Belasen, thank you so much for your hospitality, for your beautiful coffees, and for your beautiful cafe. Thank you for letting us in. Good morning and welcome. Wow, that's a voice. Can we keep you? You're super. <laughs> you're going to do some bedtime stories for us later. Hani, tell us a little bit about Bonjour, Jacob. Yeah, uh, I will start with uh, a small thing uh, about this bro- project because it, um, it was created by two dreamers. Aurélie and me, Aurélie is here, I think, and, uh, and we are the owners of this store and the next stores, <laughs> and uh, we are independent. Uh, being independent is very important for us. Um, and today we are happy to, to receive you here, because for us it's very important. We, we love monocle, we love monocle paper, print, radio, and today uh, we are very happy to, to be with you, because for us, is one of our dreams to to create this partnership with a lot of people uh, with us. Uh, can I say second thing about Bonjour Jacob? Bonjour Jacob is a place that you find the good coffee, only specialty coffee, originally uh, uh, single origin, and a lot of books, MOOCs, magazine, vinyl exhibition, and you can meet the good people. We're surrounded. We're not just surrounded by lovely coffee. We're surrounded by beautiful, beautiful magazines and books. I mean, literally floor to ceiling, every single title that you could dream of. Uh, it's the magazine lover's paradise. What's what's caught your eye in terms of you know what you've decided to put on these super shelves? Mm, we try to find the first all independent MOOCs and uh, books in the in the world, not only in France. This is the reason why our selection, the most of title is from from around the world, uh, and we have some French title, uh, sure, but the most is from from Berlin, from London, from uh, Korea, from uh, uh, from everywhere, from Cote d'Ivoire, from Abidjan, uh, and this selection is only we have three maybe uh, uh, element to choose 
choose our um, our MOOCs. The first one is the quality of books. The second is the object, and the last one is timeless. Wow. And I'm really interested to hear your story, Hani, because you come from one of my favorite cities, which is, of course, Beirut. Um, how is it that you've come to, to set up this wonderful vinyl uh, coffee magazine bookstore in, in the 10th arrondissement of Paris? What was the journey? <laughs> Yeah, in Paris we're looking for, for, for a district like the village. Uh, we don't want to be um, in the central uh, place in Paris. Uh, we try to find a place that people have time uh, to take time to, to enjoy coffee, to take time to, to read print. Uh, and and for, for me, it's the best place in Paris. You are uh, around the Canal Saint-Martin. People can take just a coffee and, and enjoy life. Uh, and this is the reason why we choose uh, uh, this district and this, uh, this area. And today, the, this place is um, in transformation. Uh, maybe 10 years ago is not the same thing. And I hope in 10 years, uh, we will find another thing in this, in this street and in this uh, district. Hani, merci. Thank you so thank much you for so joining much. us. And thank you for your hospitality. Uh, you're listening to Monocle on Sunday. Welcome back. This is Monocle on Sunday. And finally, in today's program, we're going to hear from our panelists again, Agnès Poirier and Florence Biderman. So welcome back to both of you. Um, we've got some newspapers around us. And, you know, I think this obviously... France decides is 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 the key is the key headline on on all the newspapers. Not very original, but I think there's a sense of importance attached to this election. Perhaps the most important election in 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 generations. And I know that's settled about a lot of elections. But do you think in this particular case, uh, and yes, that's uh, that's true. Every presidential election <laughs> is important to a generation. Um, it's important. This one is important. Perhaps it's because as I. Uh, said before, it's the third time we have to repel the far right. Um, and uh, we'll see how we fare. I remember very well 20 years ago when uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen and uh, Chirac uh, got through to the second round and we were two million people to protest and to take to the streets. Um, last Saturday we were 20,000, a hundred times less. So, so um, you know, that, that's a very interesting 20 years is a generation. So we'll see how we fare tonight. Um, I'm not so sure. You're not so sure? No. Really? Because well, I mean, yes. we're, we're sort of assuming, I think from our cosy corner in, in you know, north of Republique, we're thinking it's a shoe in for President Macron. And the international press as well has been talking about it. But really, how close are we here? It's interesting, uh, five years ago, the international press uh, said, oh my God, Marine Le Pen is going to be elected. And I was like, you know, calm down, um, she's not going to get elected. Um, but this, th this time, uh, it's the first time I'm not so sure. Um, so, and also Brexit has happened. Uh, since and um, although no, it was a year before um, it was in 2016, but still, and Trump happened to. So um, you know, never take it for granted. How much, uh, Florence? I think you were just preparing the grinder for Marine Le Pen if she gets in. <laughs> she, goes, she goes through the food processor. But I mean, just looking at the way that the, the French electorate has been viewing the options in front of them, um, Florence, how much does the electorate pay attention to stuff like Brexit, stuff like Trump, stuff like Ukraine? Or is it still, I think it's called le pouvoir d'achat, the, the, the cost of living, which seems to dominate every election because we all look at our own, at our own patch when we vote? Yeah, I think it's normal too. I mean, uh, international questions doesn't don't play such a, a big role in election, except when there is some kind of a special link between a candidate like Marine Le Pen and Russia, since she, she took a, uh, a loan from a Russian bank to finance her campaign. So it came into question, but most of the time, I mean, it wouldn't be relevant. Although in this time also, uh, Emmanuel Macron said uh, that it was kind of a choice for against the EU. So he tried to introduce this uh, international uh, aspect uh, in the campaign, but definitely uh, cost of living would, would come first, I think. 
I'm afraid that's all we have time. Tom Burgess Watson, Watson what a delight to sit opposite you around a cafe table. Well, yeah, it's been Lovely a very long time. Very it, long time. It has. Thank you so much to all our guests, Agnès Parier and Florence Biedemann in particular. Um, this edition of uh, Monocle on Sunday was produced by Marcus Hippie. Our studio manager here in Paris was Desiree Bandley. In London, Nora Hull was in charge of the sound. I'm Emma Nelson. I'm Tom Burgess Watson. And uh, Monocle on Sunday returns next week. But until then... Enjoy the rest of your weekend. And we'll be back here bright and early for The Globalist from Bonjour Jacob tomorrow morning. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Bye.